Well, good morning, church family and guests. It's good to see each of you. Uh, Friday afternoon, my wife and I returned from Nepal, and the fall back did not help us. It would have been helpful if we sprang forward, actually, to help close one of the 12 time zones. And so to give you an idea of how I'm doing, I made three scrambled eggs with onions on toasted rye, and I was turning the salt grinder, and nothing was coming out at 5 a.m., and the top fell off. I was on the wrong one, and the salt crystals went everywhere. So I just pushed that aside and ate the rest of it. So if my blood pressure spikes, you'll know why. So hopefully the rightly divided word will come forward better than uh, me seasoning my eggs this morning. So it is really good to see you. Thank you for your prayers while we were gone. Cade Shindell says hello to the whole church. We were able to spend three different periods of time with him on our last day in the country. Uh, We were actually able to just go out to lunch with him alone on the south side of Kathmandu and get caught up on what the Lord is doing in his heart. And he will return in about two weeks. And it is just, it is a long ways away. So right now in, this is going to seem odd because Kathmandu is off by 15 minutes from the rest of the world. So right now it is 11.05 p.m. in Kathmandu. Uh, where our bodies were adjusted to. So this is the latest I've ever preached as well. So open your scriptures to Acts 17. It'll be a little while till we get there, but find your place there. And I want to ask you what sounds like a simple question, but having just been in a city inundated with Hinduism and idolatry and Buddhism, it is an appropriate question across this globe. And not a bad question, actually, to start to introduce someone, to lead them to an understanding of the truth. Do you believe in God? And if so, which God or gods do you believe in? Thousands of gods have been worshipped throughout history and thousands of so-called deities and demons are worshipped today. Which of those do you believe in? The world is covered by religions that have elaborate ceremonies and festivals and costumes and temples and incense and poetry and singing and feasts and music and wine. Perhaps we even have our own costumes at times, our dress codes and our rituals and our masks. Do you believe in God? Do you believe in Yahweh, the God of the Bible? Do you believe in his son and do you believe in his spirit? And if so, why do you believe that? Richard Dawkins, popular atheist, said this. If one of them is right, referring to religions in general, why should it be the belief that you happen to have inherited in the country where you were born? You don't have to be very sarcastic to think something like this. Isn't it remarkable that almost every child follows the same religion as their parents and it always just happens to be the right religion? Then referencing all gods and demons, Dawkins states, we can't prove there are no fairies, but that doesn't mean we think there's a 50-50 chance that fairies exist. It's a challenging statement. So why do you believe in the God of the Bible and his son, Jesus Christ? Because entire civilizations, Egyptians, Babylonians, Greeks and Romans, all believed their gods were real. 
They worshipped to them. They sacrificed to them. They carried out ornate festivals to their gods. They even called Christians atheists for not believing in Jupiter and Neptune and any of the Roman gods. Why is there no longer widespread belief in Egypt's Osiris or the Babylonians Marduk or Greeks Zeus or Romans Jupiter? Even though the calendar months that we still go by are Roman gods. January, the god Jairus. February, based on February, the ancient fertility ritual. You can just keep going on and on. So why do you believe in the God of the Bible, Yahweh, and His Son, Jesus, and His Holy Spirit? Is it simply because it's what your parents and your grandparents believed? And I'd like to really zero in on our young people, our young adults, and our children because what we preach, because it's what we see in the Bible, is that this is an individual personal decision to place your faith in Jesus Christ. So why do you believe? How would you answer that? Because I believe in the God of the Bible because He's revealed Himself. He is a God who loves to speak, a God who loves to reveal Himself for who He is. I believe because of creation, Psalm 19 and Romans 1, because of predictive prophecy, For example, Daniel, a date proven now to show this prophecy of all these kingdoms prophesied before most of those kingdoms even existed. I believe because of the signs Jesus performed. Seven specific signs throughout the Gospel according to John. And I believe primarily because of Jesus Christ's resurrection from the dead, the empty tomb, and eyewitnesses. That is why I believe in the God of the Bible and His Son, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit. Do you see why right preaching and teaching are vital to a church? Eternity actually does hang in the balances for the nations, for the, for the entire world, because of what Jesus said in John fourteen six. And you know this. What He said is, I am the way and the truth and the life. What's the next word? No one comes to the Father except through me. We call that the exclusivicity of Christ. Acts 4, verses 11 and 12 says this, This Jesus, there is no salvation in anyone else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Nepal is a country inundated with religion. It is everywhere. We walked several miles every day and across the storefronts. You can smell the incense burning in the stores as a morning worship to the deities. They're selling little idols. If they're not selling them, they have them placed in prominent places, even in our taxis. And I'll give more of an update with pictures next week. But even in their taxis, they have either the gods Brahma or Vishnu or Shiva, their trinity, displaced all out and all the idols everywhere. To heighten things, they were celebrating one of their huge festivals called Tihar. All on the sidewalks are these beautiful, artistic, powdered paintings and designs. And they light the candles thinking it's it's the lighting festival, thinking that that light and their actions and their proximity to it will drive the darkness away. Within the city, there are thousands of temples 
stupas and monasteries. It's actually called the city of temples. I thought of Paul's words when we were walking the streets in Acts 17, verse 16. I had you open to Acts 17, where he says the city was full of idols. He then said to the people of Athens in Acts 17, 22, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. Tihar, the festival, is based on the worship of gods and animals. It's actually similar. The, the, the peak of Tihar was when we went to the airport and departed Thursday evening, which feels like a month ago. And, and as we took off, the entire city was lit. Tall buildings had blinking lights strewn all the way down the front of them, and you could see the whole city blinking and flashing with these lights. But it was worship to false deities. On one of the days... It was worship dog day. They worship cows and dogs. So you don't use holy cow in Nepal because they really believe that. It's not just a phrase. On one day, they actually take these beautiful yellow flowers and they make necklaces out of them. And they, they hang them over the dog's necks to worship the dog. They do the same with cattle. 81.3% of all Nepali are Hindu. Kathmandu is predominantly Hindu, which means they are polytheists, but like I said before, their trinity is Brahma, Shiva, and Vishnu. On top of the 81.3% that is Hindu, 9% of Nepali are Buddhist, mostly Tibetan Buddhists living in the Himalayas because the northern border they share with Tibet, which is an autonomous part of China called the rooftop of the world. They share, actually, Nepal and Tibet share Mount Everest. There's also a significant amount of Muslims, 4.4%. I don't know if you've been calculating, but that means nearly 96% of all Nepali are either Hindu, Buddhist, or Muslim. So where are the followers of Jesus? Where are the Christians? Well, after the Kirat at 3.1%, Christians only scratch the surface at 1.4%. This is my fourth segment of our current series, Why Bother with the Church? And two weeks ago, I asked this question. If you were to cast, if it was up to you to cast a vision for this local church, what would it be? What would be the non-negotiable or the non-negotiables of a vision for Highlands Baptist Church? To help clarify that, to help clarify what is vital or what is most important, I asked a follow-up question, and that is, what would a proper vision be for any church anywhere, especially in some of the most dangerous, restricted access places like Bhutan, which is a neighbor to Nepal? And for the past 10 days, this has not been a theoretical question posed from Centennial, Colorado, but was being lived out in real time as we were surrounded by people who for the most part are confused or just simply do not know about Jesus Christ. What is a proper vision then for a church in Kathmandu, which they're there, but it's not visible. Whereas when I visit my parents in Western North Carolina, there is most likely a Baptist church every half mile. In Kathmandu, there is a temple about every half mile. No churches. So what is a proper vision for the church in Kathmandu or the Valley of the Himalayas or Pokhara or Lalitpur? 
what makes a church a church, and then what should that church, once we understand who we are, what primarily should the church be doing? Because we are given a task. What is a proper vision for a church among Hindus or Buddhists or Sikhs or Muslims or the atheist state of China? Which brings us back to our question, why bother with the church? It's a lot more important question than some of us realize. Here's why, and this is going to be attached to sort of the theme from two weeks ago. We bother with the church because the church is commissioned to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to all the nations, to all the ethne, to all the people groups. It is the church commissioned to do that. So a vision for Highlands or any biblical church must include this, getting the gospel to people who don't have it. And that means also that we're doing that here. It's part of our one of it's one of our five values, mission, right? Proclaiming Christ from our neighborhood, that's here, to the nations. Denver and Damam, Saudi Arabia. Highlands Ranch and the unreached peoples of the Himalayas. Your neighbor and the nations. An unreached people is defined as this, a people group among which there is no indigenous community of believing Christians with adequate numbers and resources to evangelize their own people with outside assistance. We've heard it said this way, completely unreached people have no Bible, no witness, and no believer. So we return to these truths. The church is primarily about, number one, the right preaching and teaching of God's word. God's truth proclaimed at the center of which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Which still includes the entire Bible because Jesus, when he was walking with the disciples in Luke 24, it says beginning at Moses, right, Genesis through Deuteronomy and all the scriptures, he expounded to them the things concerning himself. Closely connected to this, we saw two weeks ago, is the right practice or picture of baptism. Christ's work illustrated a snapshot, a vivid display of the gospel and our union with Jesus Christ. That was the connection that we tied two weeks ago. And the natural outflow of this is going to be our focus for the rest of our time this morning. And that is this, the church's responsibility to get the gospel, to proclaim the truth of Jesus Christ, to make disciples and baptize them and to teach them all things whatsoever Jesus has commanded us to all nations, especially those who have no access to the gospel. Jesus himself said the focus of his ministry was preaching. We looked at this, so I'm just going to quote it. Mark chapter 1, verse 38 to 39. Jesus said this, Let us go into the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues. We see this, as a matter of fact, we start to see in the ministry of Jesus, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, where he says, after the Holy Spirit has come upon you, I'm going to send you out. You're going to be my witnesses, beginning in Jerusalem and Judea to Samaria to the world. We actually see a hint of that in John chapter 4 when Jesus purposely makes his way through Samaria and he meets an individual. He meets a woman who is a Samaritan. 
And Jesus, in his mission, is actually pushing against expectations. He's pushing against gender expectations. Matter of fact, she brings that one up. How can you, being a Jewish man, talk to me, a Samaritan woman? He pushes against religious expectations. He even pushes against the expectations of his own disciples. They were a little surprised he was sitting there and talking to a Samaritan woman. It's interesting how mission and evangelistic opportunities spring out of genuine need. The narrative tells us that Jesus, in John chapter 4, verse 6 and verse 7, in the fullness of his humanity, is wearied. Do you know it's not sin to be tired? Jesus himself, the perfect Son of God, was wearied and thirsty. So he asks a Samaritan woman for a drink. Why did he ask for that? Was that the only place to get water? No, what he is doing is he is creating a situation. He's creating a dialogue where his desire is not to quench his own thirst, but to actually, as the harvester of souls, to lead her to something more satisfying than Jacob's well could ever give to her. And that is forgiveness of sin and a truly satisfied soul. The question is, how does Jesus do this? Well... Pun intended. See? Jet lag. He begins a dialogue about water that leads to worship. He does that by sort of opening a wound in her heart by saying, go call your husband. Of course, she tells the truth. She says, I have no husband. And he says, you have rightly said you have no husband. You know the story. And she switches the topic to exactly where he wanted to go anyway. He never returns to that immorality, and he starts to lead her to the satisfaction of her soul. Mission is connected to need, and the physical and the spiritual are connected, and we are created to worship. Now, notice what happens. We're flying through this narrative, but the Samaritan woman becomes a catalyst for truth. In John chapter 4, verse 39, it says this, Many Samaritans from that town believed in him. Do you know why? Scripture tells you. Because of the woman's testimony, he told me all that ever I did. Verse 40, so when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed, listen, because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. How do they know that? His word. His preaching. How does this connect to the church? Well, Jesus gave to us, to the disciples, and by default then into Acts to the church, five great commission passages. And we're not going to explore all of those, but I want to sort of gather them together because all five great commission passages actually connect at one point. In Matthew 28, 19, I want to see if you can pick it up. Jesus says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. In Mark 16, verse 15, he says, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. In Luke 24, 47, he says this, that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be preached in his name to all nations. John 20, 21, he says, as the Father has sent me, 
Even so, I am sending you. Well, where is he sending them? Acts chapter 1, verse 8, the fifth great commission passages. You will be my witnesses to the end of the earth. They all connect at the point of getting the gospel to all the nations, to every people group. And that's the focus. And that's what the church is commissioned with. But it won't be easy, in part because of spiritual opposition, in part because the unreached remain unreached because they are in difficult and dangerous places and places that honestly are just hostile and difficult to live in. We often heard people say the safest place to be is in the will of God. Do you know that's not true? It's not the safest place. You might be imprisoned. You could be tortured. You might die young. The best place to be is in the will of God, but it's certainly not the safest. Matthew 10, verse 16, Jesus said, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Folks, that doesn't sound safe. How does this connect? How does Christ's commission to the disciples and his church with missions and cultures and differing religions, how does that connect to us? Well, it's still about the right preaching and teaching of God's word and baptizing those who believe, right? Truth proclaimed to everyone at the center of which is the good news of Jesus Christ. I've had you turn to Acts 17. Look at verse 16. Now remember, Acts provides for us about the first 30 to 32 years, the first generation of church history. The book of Acts abruptly ends. So it's almost like dot, dot, dot. The church is now to pick up from there and carry on similar to what you just saw in the first generation, the first 30 years of church history. Look at Acts chapter 17, verse 16. And I've already referenced this at the beginning. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. Okay, so how does a Christian respond when they're in that context? Verse 17. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons. Keep reading because it does something else. And in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. And the content of his preaching, look at, look at, at the end of verse 18. He was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. I quoted Acts 17.22 earlier. Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. It's actually interesting. The, the tactic that Paul is going to use. In verse 28, he quotes a Greek pagan writer to support his point. Much like I quoted Richard Dawkins to support a curious question. It's a citation from Aratus, a Greek poet from his Phenomena 5. Some say the original line is actually, was actually meant to be pantheistic. It'll sound familiar to you. In him we move and live and have our being. Paul sort of retools that poetic line to, to do a crossover to teach them the truth about God as the source of life. He ends the quote by saying, as even some of your own poets have said. Well, what does Paul do next? Look at verse 29, Acts chapter 17. He goes on to preach, being then God's offspring, 
We ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. Paul directly addresses their idol worship. Verse 30, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to what? Very unpopular message. Repent. Do you know that's the same preaching content that was found in Jesus' sermon in Mark chapter 1, verses 15 to 16? Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Paul is simply doing and preaching what Jesus himself preached. Verse 31, Acts 17, because he has fixed a day on which he will, what's the next word? Judge. Another unpopular topic and theme. In which he will judge the world in righteousness. Those are the themes of the beginning of this sermon, repentance and judgment. But then he moves, he runs to Jesus Christ as the hopeful answer. He talks about judging the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. You know, we need this encouragement in Denver too. I was very encouraged two weeks ago to hear during our members meeting John Tonello's update about evangelistic outreach in downtown Denver. And we heard about the rejections or the disinterest. And it's here where we too locally need to remember the simplicity of our mission. Teaching, persuading, speaking. It's not about decisions. It's about proclaiming the truth. But we also need to be reminded of the difficulty which the Gospels, which neither the Gospels nor Acts hide, rejection and mocking. But we also need the hope that some might believe. Look at Acts chapter 17, verse 32. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. Verse 33. So Paul went out from their midst. Verse 34 But some men joined him and what? And believed. Paul quoting Aratus was similar to what he did in Titus 1 verse 12 where he cited the 6th century B.C. philosopher Epimenides. He was a Cretan. Matter of fact, Paul said this. He quotes, One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Do you know in the original when Epimenides actually wrote that down, do you know why he was calling the Cretans that? Because they started to reject the fact in their minds that Zeus was immortal. Matter of fact, Epimenides wrote this poem to Zeus. They fashioned a tomb for thee, O holy and high one. The next line is what will be familiar to you. The Cretans always liars, evil beasts, idle bellies. But thou art not dead, Zeus. Thou livest and abidest forever. For in thee we live and move and have our being. Doesn't that sound familiar? That's because Paul uses this and he retools it again to take that and teach them the truth about Yahweh and His Son. So immediately following that reference, he says this in Titus 1.13, This is the response. Rebuke them, the Cretans, 
sharply. That's a verbal ministry. That they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and commands of people who turn away from the truth. Immediately following Titus 2 verse 1. But as for you, Titus, teach what accords with sound doctrine. In Acts 18, Paul goes to Corinth. His mission, Acts 18, verse 4, he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. Next verse, verse 18, when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, I love this statement, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. The right teaching and preaching of God's word, baptizing those who believe the truth, which is directly connected to getting the gospel to those who don't have it. If we keep reading in Acts, Acts 18, verse 8, Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, hearing his preaching, believed and were baptized. The connection we made two weeks ago. Verse 11, and Paul stayed a year and six months with them. You know what he did? Verse 11, he stayed there teaching the word of God among them. Acts 18, Paul goes to Ephesus, where it says he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. So here's the question. Why bother with the church? Because the church is commissioned to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to the nations, to all people groups. And this is accomplished by local churches obeying Jesus together. From prison, please turn to Ephesians 4. From prison, Paul wrote this letter. Some say it was a circular letter. It probably was. It went around to several different churches in Asia. But the, the, the copy that we have is addressed to the Ephesians. And we see the same emphasis in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. We're going to pick up right in the middle of this context. In Ephesians 4, verse 11, Scripture says, He, Christ, referencing back to the context before verse 11, He, Christ, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. What do all those have in common? The leaders listed are teacher leaders. Ephesians 4, 11 to 16, if you look at that, really large piece. It's one sentence. It's actually 150 words in the English Standard Version. And they're in that huge, in all those 150 words, there is a subject and a verb. Look at verse 11. He. That's the subject. The Lord Jesus Christ is the subject. And he gave. There's your verb. Verse 11. And he gave something. What is he given? What is he gifted? Christ has given verbally gifted teachers, apostles, the prophets whose primary ministry was not foretelling, though they did that, but it was forthtelling already written truths. The evangelist, there's only one man in Scripture called an evangelist. His name is, anybody know? Philip. You know what we see, you know what we see Philip the evangelist doing? taking a portion of Isaiah and explaining it to a North African man. You know what we see him doing immediately after the Ethiopian believes? Baptizing him. You see the connections. Evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. It's, it's what they do that's important. It's not the title. It's not who they are. 
It's the emphasis that is placed on the right preaching and teaching of God's word. Verse 12, they equip the saints for the work of the ministry and they equip by teaching. So, so this, this means, I mean, if we're thinking globally, that these men are not leading every single program the church decides to put forward or, every, or, or they're not organizing every churchy function or visiting every sick member. Jesus didn't even visit John the Baptist in prison. I'm not minimizing those or the importance of those or that those might not be included in the shepherd, elder, overseer's description. But what we're emphasizing is his primary task of preaching and teaching. Matter of fact, it's the emphasis we see in Acts 6. Let me just read this. Acts 6, verse 1. Now, in those days, when the disciples were increasing... In number, a complaint by the Hellenists, the Greeks, arose against the Hebrews, the Jews, because their widows, Greek widows, were being neglected in the daily distribution. Possibly because the Hebrew widows were being, were, were being shown preference. It's a real problem. It's actually a distinction that shouldn't be being made. How did they respond? Verse 2 And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Not because they were above that task, but that there was a task above that that they were called to. Verse 3, Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. We have been equipped to equip and that equipping is done through teaching for the building up. Ephesians 4, if you're there, I want you to notice these words. I'm going to run through these quickly because these are all words of growth that spring from right doctrine. Verse 12, building up. Ephesians 4, verse 13, unity. Ephesians 4, verse 13, mature. Same verse, measure. Same verse, stature. Same verse, fullness. Verse 15, to grow up in every way. Verse 16, joined. Verse 16, held together. Same verse, equipped, grow, builds itself up. That's what healthy, right teaching produces. That means that we're not just going somewhere and doing stuff. We're actually becoming something together. We are becoming a healthy body. Look at verse 14, chapter 4, Ephesians, verse 14. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by what? And how much more the danger of these winds with access to almost everybody who speaks and teaches. We equip by teaching because the danger is this. People are blown about by every wind of doctrine. Every little teaching that comes along. And if we reject sound doctrine, as Paul told Timothy, that the time will come when they do that and they have itching ears. Listen, you can find what you want to hear. You'll actually have Christian preachers give you permission to do whatever you want. By human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. How is that wind of doctrine that is false counteracted? Verse 15, rather... Speaking the truth in love. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. 
The right preaching and teaching of God's Word that leads to growth and a healthy every member ministry. It's interesting. We're going to look at this more next week. But the metaphor of a body is used. There's this close interconnectedness and interdependency. Now, due to jet lag and time zones, I woke up wide awake at 4 a.m. this morning. And what if, I was thinking about this as I sat there at the dining room table, very alert. What if this morning my right leg and both of my eyes decided to stream life from the bedroom? The rest of my body's ready to go out and make coffee, but not my right leg, nor both of my eyes. So they just stay in bed. I know it's kind of gruesome, right? My mind and mouth say, come on, we need you. We need to do this together. And the eyes and the right leg say, nah, we're good. Right here. The rest of the body is ready to move, get on with the day, but my right leg and my right eyes are stubborn. They are convinced they can be the body without getting out of bed. They say, we're still together. It's just today that you need to hop and be blind. What would happen? Chaos. I probably wouldn't have even been able to make coffee, let alone show up here and preach. It is interesting. We're going to explore this a lot more in detail next week. Why Paul uses the body as a metaphor. In 1 Corinthians, just to give you a glimpse, it says this in 1 Corinthians 12, 21 and 26. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again to the head, to the feet, I have no need of you. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Look at Ephesians 4, verse 16. From whom the whole body, right? From the body's head, Jesus Christ, we are joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Do you know that for a divided, unhealthy church, they have compromised the Great Commission. Why does this matter? Because it is healthy churches that are effective in getting the gospel to those who don't have it. 60, 66% of the world's population is in the 1040 window. 90% of all unreached people are in this so-called 1040 window. That's simply the longitude and the latitude. Only 2 to 5% of missionaries are sent to 3.1 billion unreached people. While 95 to 98% of missionaries are sent to the reached. 0.5% of church spending targets the most gospel needy areas of the world, which means 99.5% of church spending goes towards those who already have a witness and a Bible and a church. You know, there's something about preaching that is irreplaceable. So I'm going to end again with Romans 10. You can close your Bibles while I read this. Because Paul asks this series of questions. How then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in Him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? And in every situation, in every question, it is they can't. So why bother with the church? We bother with the church 
We gather with the church. We are a present and active member of a biblical, healthy, local church. We serve in a church and we give to the church because we are commissioned to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to all the nations, to every ethne, all peoples. And we do this together as a healthy body from our neighborhood to the nations. One quick application. I want to make these available next week. Would you consistently pray this week, and I'll I'll include this in the week at a glance tomorrow, a map of the 1040 window. Would you just pray? That's something we can do. We can ask the Father that His kingdom will come and His will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I'm going to invite our music team forward while I read two more references out of the New Testament. Jesus said something fascinating in Matthew 24, 14. Listen to this. Jesus said, This gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. You know the nations are still waiting to hear. John said in Revelation chapter 7, 7 verses 9 to 10, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. You know who's singing that? All the nations, all the peoples. Yet many have never heard yet. Let's pray.